title today is The Grace That Keeps Us. We're in James chapter 5, verse 19 and 20. So we're in the last two verses. Uh, we've made our way through the whole book of James. Been there for several months now. And one thing that we have seen throughout this book is that real faith is visible faith. What that means is that our faith cannot be hidden from this world. Our faith will be seen in every aspect of our lives. And throughout the book of James, that's what he has shown. He has just shown various ways as we obey God's word that our faith will be seen. It is seen in how we endure difficult trials. Our faith is seen in how we love and serve the poor, how we use our tongue, how we think about and use our worldly possessions, how we plan our days and our years, how we endure injustice and sickness. James covers many parts of the Christian life. And now James is going to bring his letter to an end, and he does it very abruptly. Now, most of the letters in the New Testament, they end with some type of greeting, meaning uh, Paul will be saying, uh, hey, greet this person and greet this person and make sure you hug this person. And usually the letters end with some phrase like, grace be with you. And it's just, it's gentle and it feels like the letter comes to a conclusion. Or perhaps like the book of Jude, some of you women have been studying the book of Jude, it ends in a doxology, a praise to God. But James ends very abruptly, and it's a call for the church to look out for one another. James ends his letter by emphasizing the relationships that we have in this room. And why does he do this? He does it because he wants us to know that we are responsible for one another, that we are to look out for one another. He is calling the members of the church to function like lifeguards, to be aware of anyone in the church who is struggling in their faith, who is beginning to wander from their faith. And so here's the main point that James wants us to see today. The means that God uses to keep us in the faith is other believers. That's what, that's what we need to see. The means, or one of the means that God uses that we would stay in the faith is one another. Or to say it this way, God's preserving grace comes to us in the presence of others so we would persevere in our faith. That's our main point. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so I want to go ahead and invite you to stand. We're only reading two verses, so we won't be standing long. But here at Timberline, we stand at the reading of God's Word. We do so because we believe God's Word comes inspired by the Spirit, full of the authority of God for the purpose of training, for equipping, uh, that we would be able to serve one another and that we live out our faith in this world. So James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we come to you right now. And I pray that your spirit just works through your word and this message today. That we would see the necessity of the church, of your bride, of your body, and how your spirit is given to each and every one of us so that we would serve one another, 
so that we would love one another, so that you would use us as a means of grace, of encouraging each other in our walk, in our faith, each and every day. God, be with us today as we study your word. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Last week, uh, Chris Gorman, and he preached verses 13 through 18. And those verses focus on physical troubles, sickness. And the point was, is that when we experience physical sickness and troubles, we're to call the body of believers. We're to call the elders and others, and others to come pray for us. And now, James turns from physical trials to spiritual trials. And he says, when you're struggling spiritually, we need the church also. So that's how this, this text functions with the one that we looked at last week. And so uh, let's begin by asking, what does it, or answering the question, what does it mean that we wander from the truth? Because that's where we start. We, James says, my brothers, if any of you wanders from the truth, well, what is that? Well, this is the third time that James has used the word truth in his letter. The first time was in chapter 1, verse 18, and there he writes, of his own will, talking about God, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That phrase, word of truth, is used five times in the New Testament, and every single time it refers to the gospel. We, we preached about that when we were in chapter 1 months ago. James also uses the word truth in chapter 3, verse 14. There he goes, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Be false to the gospel. Be false to Jesus. Be false to, to the one who has called you in salvation. So again, James uses the, uses the word truth to refer to our faith in Jesus. So now here in chapter 5, James uses, uses the word truth once again, to refer to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And really, all throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is referred to as the truth. In fact, in John 14, 6, probably one of the, the more famous ways of illustrating this is when Jesus says, I am the way and the, you remember, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the one and only Son of God who has come from the Father for the purpose of coming to this earth that he as a man would live and then one day go to the cross where he would die on that cross in your place and mine and then later, three days later, rise from the grave conquering sin, death, and Satan so that we who believe in him would be forgiven, would be adopted, would be given a citizenship in the kingdom of God and that we would have eternal life. So what does it mean then to wonder from this truth? Well, it means that we no longer believe that Jesus is the one who provides forgiveness of our sins. And there's many ways that we could look at that. It may mean we no longer mean, believe he rose from the grave. It may mean we think that Jesus is just one way to heaven. It may mean we stop believing in God altogether, and thus we don't even think we need forgiveness of sins. Whatever that looks like, to wander from the truth is to doubt that our hope is solely rooted in Jesus Christ. 
That is, what the, that is what the Bible is built upon, is that Christ is the one who has come that we have eternal life. So to wander from that truth says, I don't need Jesus. Or, Jesus is good, but I'm going to use a lot of other things as well. So that leads us to the next question. So what would cause us to do that? What causes us to wander from the truth? Remember, James is talking to the church. Now, we do know, as James has talked to the church over these five chapters, that there is division, that there are problems in the church. We also know that sometimes there are people in the church who say they're Christians, but not actually Christians. So we know that just as that exists today, that existed then. But James is saying, for as what we know, everyone here says that there are believers, so why would anyone wander from the truth of the gospel? So the New Testament gives us many answers to that question. I want to give six. We could have given seven, we could have given five, but we seem to stop at six. It seemed like a good number. Um, so I'm just going to walk through some of the things that we see in God's Word about reasons why people wander from the truth of the gospel. Number one, we see that false teachers exist in almost every single book of the New Testament. Almost every book warns us about false teachers. In fact, this is what 2 Peter says, chapter 2, verse 1. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth, the gospel, will be blasphemed. I mean, I just want you to think about it. That was true 2,000 years ago. Today, we have the internet, we have cell phones, podcasts, every form of social media, and there just seems to be more and more developed all the time. There is a means, there is a way that false teaching can spread today like it has never spread before. There's also a way that the gospel, the truth of the gospel, can spread in ways that has never spread before. But false teaching is able, uh, is something that you and I, and that all of us are exposed to on a regular basis. This is why it's so important that we have biblical elders who know the Word of God, who are coming before us each week, teaching and training us in the Word of God. This is why it's so important that James calls the church to know the Word of God, that we would read and remember in James chapter 122. We don't stop at reading, but then what do we do? We obey. Let us not be hearers only, but let us be doers of the word of God. So James is calling us to know God's word, to obey God's word, that we would not be led astray by false teaching. And so that is something, and I want to encourage you, we must be aware of. For our sake, for our kids' sake, for other loved ones' sake, we must be aware that there's a lot of false teaching today. So that is a means, and we see that in every single letter of the New Testament. We also see the fear of man is a means in which people will wander from the truth. So what do I mean by that? This is where we act a certain way because of how we think other people view us. And we will always fall prey to sin when we care more about what other people think about us than what God thinks about us. And you might sit here and say, I'm not, really, I'm not really prone to uh, peer pressure, um, pretty strong personality, pretty bold. Uh, 
But I just want to remind us that the Apostle Peter, one of those called by Christ, one of those who knows and saw that Christ was resurrected from the grave, he wandered from the truth. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul comes and confronts Peter. In fact, this is what we read in chapter 2, that Peter was no longer walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Well, what was he doing? Well, some Jews came from Jerusalem to the church, and all of a sudden, Peter saw them, and he said, oh man, maybe I should stop eating with the Gentiles. Maybe I should pull back from them and only eat with the Jews. And what he was doing, he forgot that the truth of the gospel unites Jew and Gentile into one new man, into one new creation, that we would be one in Christ. But by stepping back from the Gentiles, he was denying what the gospel does, showing that there's division within the church. And so Peter or Paul comes and rebukes him. And so one thing that we must be constantly aware of, am I reading and knowing God's word? Am I growing in my understanding? Am I obeying him? Or am I more concerned about what other people are thinking about me? Number three, uh, possessions, position, prestige. 2 Timothy verse four, uh, chapter 4, verse 10, we read that Demas, one of the, one of the fellow workers of the, of the apostle Paul, abandons him. And Paul says he abandoned him because he loved the things of this world. In fact, earlier in the book of James, we see that the church is wrestling with possessions. And do we help the poor or do we keep our money for ourselves? How do we use these kind of things? And I've seen many, many people in the church wander from the gospel because of the love of possessions. In fact, at the last church I was at, I had an amazing adult volunteer. Uh, we were good friends. We did many, many things together. Uh, and he got a new job. And as he got this new job, he got more money. And as he got more money, he eventually moved to a different house. He got more toys, more possessions. And not that those things are wrong. Again, we, we talk about those things on a regular basis. God's not against possessions and those things. But he's against the heart that idolizes those things. And so what I began to see is as he began to love these things and buy these things, he began to be less faithful in coming to church, wasn't reading the word as much. So I, I would begin to talk to him about it. We would meet and I'd say, hey, what's happening here? And he would say, oh, there's no problem. There's no problem. There's no problem. And so that continued until the point that he left the church. And he no longer decided that he needed to be a part of the church because he found something he loved more than Christ. And that is something that we need to be aware of. Many, many letters in the New Testament all warn us about our love for possessions, about our love for worldly things, and making sure that while we can use them, while they are good, that they never become the idols in our life that take us away from Christ. Uh, we also see difficult relationships. In James chapter 4, we see that people are fighting in the church. Now, why do they fight? James tells us they fight because they all have evil desires. They want their own way. Rather than looking out for the best of one another, they say, no, I want what I want. Let me ask you, have you ever talked to someone who no longer gathers with the church because they've been hurt by other Christians? Have you ever heard that story? 
You ever talk to someone who says, you know what, I'm done with Christianity because they've seen how Christians treat one another or because they feel like they were treated unfairly? I have, I have friends. I'm sure you have friends. We know of those who have walked away from the faith because harsh words were given, there was insensitivity, and there was fighting within the church. Now, there are, there are reasons also. Some people have walked away from the church when the church is faithful, and when the church rebukes, and when the church is faithful in practicing uh, church discipline. Some people walk away and say, well, that's just unfair. Um, that's unloving. And yet we would say, no, that's exactly what we're called to do. But there's also times that we as a church... We can be more concerned about our way than God's way. We can be more concerned about the things that we like than about coming and serving one another. And there are times that we can use words in harsh ways against one another. Um, The way we interact with one another draws people to Jesus or will push people away from Jesus. And that's true not only in the church, but outside the church. The way we interact, the way we love one another, we're either showing them a picture of who Christ is, which is really what the whole book of James is about. As we live out our faith, we're showing what does it mean to be a citizen of God's kingdom? What does it mean to be a child of God? What does it mean to say that I am a citizen of God's kingdom and I am here to show that rule in this world? And we, when we do that, we draw people towards Christ. But if we don't, we can push people away. The next one, sickness, trials, and persecution. Throughout James' letter, we see that Christians will endure difficulties. If you remember, in chapter 1, one of our first sermons, he said when we endure, that we will endure trials. And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to ask for wisdom when we endure those trials. In chapter 5, verse 16, we see that rich people were taking advantage of some of the poor in the church. And in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, we see that as Christians, just like other people, we get sick. We suffer from disease, cancer, disabilities, Parkinson's, loved ones have strokes. Now, what I've seen over the years is that many of us can sprint through difficult trials. A difficult trial comes, we can be really faithful as we make our way through that trial. But the longer they get, as that sprint turns into a marathon, and it doesn't go away right away, it begins to be harder, and it begins to wear on us. We may actually begin to question, is God still with us? We might begin to wonder, is there really hope? We might begin to question that Romans 8, 28, is God really working this for our good? We begin to wonder if it's worth the time to pray. We might even say, is there anyone listening when I pray? You ever, have you ever heard that? Have you ever thought those kind of things? I mean, I know many of you have gone through just difficult trials. And as we're in them, we naturally begin to ask questions. We actually see that through the book of Psalms, right? We see the, the writers of the book of Psalms will cry out, where are you, God? What are you doing? I need you. Are you listening? Rise up, O God. So we see throughout the Psalms that, We have people, when they're enduring trials, we question, we wonder, what is God doing? And we do the same also. And at first, we might dismiss these thoughts as crazy, or we might be able to come right back to biblical truths and say, no, but I know the truth. I know who God is. But as time goes on, what I've noticed is that sometimes people will begin to entertain these thoughts more 
and more. And rather than continue to fight to believe the gospel, we find it easier to begin to believe the lies. When we begin to reject our faith, we find it easier to believe that there is no God. Have you ever met someone like that? Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've wrestled with with God in your faith in difficult trials. Last one is death. Have you ever talked to someone that says, you know, I used to believe in God. But then this loved one died. You just fill in whoever that loved one is. And they say, I couldn't understand how that was good. No loving God would do that. And because of that, they walk away from the faith. Have you heard that story? I've heard that one a hundred times easy from people. Their reasoning is that if God doesn't play by their rules, if we don't understand the whole picture, then we're not going to believe and trust in God. So these are, these are six ways that we see throughout God's word, throughout James, and I think we could all probably say we've seen people like this, or we've been there, and we've wrestled with some of these issues. So is there a way we could summarize them? I, I think so. If you go back to James chapter 4, verse 7, <clears throat> it's in James 4 through 7 that James talks about what the normal Christian life looks like. And so what we read in verse 7, 8, 9, and 10 is what you and I ought to be doing every single day. And number one, we see in verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. As we're moving in to chapter 4, and everything in chapter 5 is about acknowledging that our God is king. That he's given us his word, that we would know him, that we would understand him, and that we would submit our lives to him. And so, what is the means in which we do not wander from the truth? It's by each day coming back to God's word, submitting therefore to God. And as we do that, we will, what we're promised is that Satan will flee. Those doubts, those lies, will be overcome by the truths of God's word. But why do I say it's the normal Christian life? It's what we do every day. We don't, we don't overcome a battle and never have to fight it again. Sometimes we have to overcome these lies on a regular basis. But regularly, we're to come to God's word, submitting to God, that we would, that we would trust him, that we would love him, and that we would walk faithfully as he has called us to. Um, because what, what our culture says is that uh, you are enough. Have you heard that? It's pretty popular. You'll, see, you'll hear it on songs. You'll hear it in, in magazines. You'll see it on, on various articles that you are enough. And it's a lie that our culture is perpetuating. And, and what it means is that you, you can handle whatever comes your way. You don't need God's grace. You are strong enough. Trust in yourself. Trust in your resources. Trust in who you are. Be who you are. But what we know is that that's not true. And how do we know? Because of the cross. The cross stands, the climax of all of history, declaring you and I 
We're not enough. Because if we were, we wouldn't need Jesus to come and die on the cross for us. We wouldn't need his grace every single day. But the fact that Christ comes, dies on the cross, because there's no other means in which we can be forgiven before God, is to tell us, is to show us, we're not enough. We need grace. We need help. We need the very grace of God in our life each and every day that we would walk faithfully, that we would follow God, and that we would stay in the faith. And the cross not only declares to us that we're not enough, but it also reminds us what happens if we'll reject God. Jesus goes to the cross that he would stand in your place and my place, that he would absorb the wrath of God. But the cross stands and reminds us, but if you don't believe in Jesus... If you don't believe that you need Jesus to stand in your place, then one day you will stand before God. And you will receive God's judgment. And rather than Jesus absorbing it on the cross, you will absorb it for all of eternity in what the Bible calls hell. And so all throughout God's word, beginning in Genesis 3, we see that we're not enough. I mean, if you go back to Adam and Eve, where they're in the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect. If anyone has a chance of earning their way to God, Adam and Eve do, right? And yet, what do we see? We see that as Satan comes in, presents them with a lie, rather than submitting to God, destroying the serpent, rejecting the lie, they embrace the lie. And they fall into sin. And you and I are no different, which is why we need the gospel each and every day. And so, How is it then that we're to respond to what we have here in James? How is it that we're to respond when someone wanders from the truth? Well, if we go to verse 19, this is what we read. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. So what do we do? We bring them back. They're wandering. We bring them back. So what does it mean? How do we bring them back? We grab them little church vigilante-like, you know, group. We're going to need a deacon of that one. We could use a volunteer afterwards. Um, Several, I mean, there's many ways we can answer this. Uh, Remember, the text right before what we read here in verses 19 through 20 is when people are, are physically sick, what do we do? We pray. So I think that just as we we read that, and now we go into verse 19 and 20, now we have people who are spiritually struggling. What do we do? We pray. One of the ways that we demonstrate our faith each and every day is by coming to God in prayer. We pray for them. And think about 1 John. 1 John chapter 5, 16. This is what it says. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. Meaning, If we see our brother, he's committing sin, beginning to wander from the truth, what do we do? We pray to God, and God will give that person life, meaning bring him back to the truth of the gospel. When we're praying, we're asking God to save his children, asking God to save those who he's promised that he's faithful to. Many of you may remember in the gospels, uh, Jesus comes to Peter, and they have an interesting conversation. This is what we read in Luke chapter 22. Jesus comes to Peter and he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So what's the point? Satan wants to take you away from the truth. You're not just going to wander. Satan wants to pull you away. 
Well, what does Jesus do? He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now think about it. Of all the things Jesus could say, but don't worry, Peter, I'm God. I took care of the problem. He doesn't say that, but rather he says, I've prayed for you, and God will answer my prayers. That is one of the primary means that we love one another. When when people begin to wander from the truth, we pray. Why will our children stay firm in the faith? Because we pray. Why will our loved ones persevere in the faith? Because we pray. Why will those who have walked away, and some of them we know, they've walked away, and it seems like they've been gone for a while, weeks, months, years. Why will they come back? Because we pray. One of the primary ways in which we love one another is praying for one another. Because what we've seen throughout God's word in the book of James and others is that God uses the prayers of his people to accomplish his purposes. I don't know why I'm losing my voice. First time I've preached in like three weeks, I should be like fresh. But we'll see. I think it's going. Um, So number one, we pray. Number two, we come alongside them. We come alongside them. When we see a fellow believer beginning to doubt, beginning to wrestle with what they believe, we move toward them. We confront them. We encourage them. We walk with them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. When one of our brothers is stumbling, it says, come, share his burden with him. We come alongside one another. Now, this is often what we do. And this is not good. So be prepared. What, what we do is not good most of the time. Because we say things like this. I don't want to be nosy. Maybe they just need space. As if that's a reason for us not then to go to them. And what we do is we, we let them wander because we don't want to be nosy, because maybe they just need to figure out this sin on their own. But I want you to think about, where do we see that in the Gospels? What if God said that? You know what? Let's just give them space. Let's see what happens. I won't send Jesus. What if Jesus had said that when Satan says, I demand to sift Peter? You know what? Let's just see if Peter can do it on his own. No, Jesus goes towards him, we go towards one another. You see, Christianity, it's not about just you and I getting saved. You see, we live here in the West, we live in a very individualistic society. Everything we do is about individualism. How we, how we live and, and the things that we buy. But what we see in God's word is that we are saved from this lifestyle of only being concerned about us, that we would be saved and joined with other believers. The 1 Corinthians says that we become the body of Christ, that we are the bride of Christ. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the the branches. I mean, we're all connected through the vine. You and I, we're all connected with one another. And we're called family. We're called brothers and sisters in Christ. God is called our Father. Jesus is our elder brother. What's all that language meant to communicate? That when somebody struggles, we go, hope they make it. Is that what we do in our families? No, we go to them. 
because we're family. So what does it look like to do that? Well, I want to encourage you, turn uh, to the second to last book in the Bible, to the book of Jude. Look at look at book of Jude. Now, Jude is this incredible Bible, incredible book where he operates like James in many ways. He tells us what does it look like to live out our faith. So that's what Jude wants us to know. And at the end of the letter, he's going to describe part of the Christian life. And this is what he says in verse 22. We are to have mercy on those who doubt. I want you to think about that. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, hey, when there's someone in the church and they're doubting, when they're wrestling with the truths of God, when they're wrestling with, do I believe this? Am I going to stay in this? He says we're to have mercy with them. We don't need to be scared. We don't need to be defensive. We don't need to be angry when someone questions their faith. Guess what? God's big enough, right? He can handle our questions. We're not going to scare God. We're not going to shock God with our questions. In fact, on Friday, um, my son and I were driving to Portland, and he, he turns and he says, hey, how do we know God's real? How do we know Jesus is the only way to heaven? Awesome questions. So for like the next half hour, that's what we did. And we talked about it, but guess what? We'll probably come back to those again, because those are big questions, right? Those are questions that we constantly need to wrestle with. But we need to be patient with one another, especially when they're questioning God because of a difficult trial or a suffering or some type of death that they've experienced in their life. We need to be soft and gentle and merciful. We need to let people wrestle. We need to show there's a value to the questions. We don't want to act like it's wrong to question our faith. I think that's been an error of Christianity for a while. Oh, don't question. If you question, you're wrong and just just believe as if belief is just in some blind logic. But rather, every book of the Bible gives us reasons for our belief. In fact, Paul prays that we would know all the more who Christ is. He wants us to use our minds as we come into the gospel. So we're, we come and we listen to people. <clears throat> we comfort them just with our presence. And when we're able to, we use God's word as a means of, of showing them the truth of who our God is, of how he is a king and he uses our trials for good. So let's be merciful with people when they question when they, when they wonder what God is doing. Now next, look at verse 23 in Jude. It says, we're to save others by snatching them out of the fire. When a child is drowning in a pool, what do we do? Do we sit by and watch? Well, I don't want to be nosy. Let's see what happens. We realize there's consequences if we don't jump in, right? Why do you think Jude uses the word fire? He wants us to know there's consequences if we don't jump in. If we don't go, they're going towards fire. There are real consequences for wandering from the faith. And so Jude says, we go to them, snatching them. Look back at James. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from what? Death. Well, what's he talking about? Just physical death? No, there's a judgment. If you want to wander from God, there is a consequence. But if we we bring them back, it 
covers a multitude of sins. Their consequences are eternal. And we are to, to come after one another. We are to love one another for the sake of that we are family, for the sake of our souls. Like police officers in front of the gates of hell, we are to stand there redirecting traffic on a daily basis. That is what we do. Not only for unbelievers as we try to share the gospel with them, but for one another that we would continually remember the truth of the gospel that we'd be anchored into the fact that jesus christ is the son of god who has died for us this is the role of not just the elder or the deacon but it's every one of us look how paul or james begins verse 19 my brothers who is he talking to the church he doesn't go now guys look towards your elders guys look towards the deacons look towards whatever leadership you have Look to the Christian who's been there the longest. He says, my brothers, whoever wonders from the truth, this is what we do. This is the responsibility that we all have for one another because in Christ, we're all family. In Christ, we've all been saved, that we would help one another, that we'd love one another. So what is the way that we do that? Well, this is where we kind of plug table groups. Now, table groups is not the, the answer to all problems, but it is a means in which we can live out this truth. Table groups help us to get to know each other. It provides a place for us to ask questions, for us to wrestle with our faith. It provides a means in which we know someone and we know the trials that people are going through so that we might love them, we might minister to them well, and we might know, hey, this person's going through something pretty rough. I think they're actually struggling. How are we going to know that unless if we do life with one another? So there's multiple ways that could happen. A way that we do that and we ask everyone to be a part of it is through that table group process where we get to know each other, where we get to come alongside each other. We get to live out the truth of James 5, 19 and 20. We do table groups because we see them as a means of staying in the faith. Now look at Jude 21 though. So this goes back a verse. Jude says, we are to keep ourselves in the love of God. So he's looking at us and says, keep yourself in the love of God. So how do we do that? Well, he answers it by saying, having mercy on those who doubt, snatching them out of the fire, those who are wandering from the truth. You see, James is, or Jude is very much like James. Our faith is visible. What does real faith look like? If you're here as a believer in Jesus Christ and God's Spirit is working in you, Jude is saying the way you know you're saved is you go, is you go after those who are wondering and you have mercy on those who doubt. That's how you keep yourself in the gospel, living out your faith. James is very much the same, right? This is who we are. We hear the word, we obey the word. This is what it looks like to obey the word. Chapter 2, 3, 4, and 5. And so we don't just go after one another for their sake, but we go after them because it's the evidence of our own salvation. It's the means of knowing that we ourselves are saved in the gospel. So as I was thinking through this sermon, and I was wrestling with this point, I began to realize that we're also going to be questioning here, what about the assurance of our salvation? Why are we talking about making sure other people are saved or helping people stay saved? Don't we believe in that phrase, once saved, always saved? You guys heard that phrase? 
Most heads are nodding. Um, isn't keeping people saved God's business? That's true-ish. Um, so let's ask the question then. How does God preserve his people? What does he do? So first, let's address the question, or address the phrase, once saved, always saved. In one sense, this communicates a truth of the assurance that we have in our salvation. But what does it do also? It unfortunately leads to a life of passivity, which we don't see anywhere in the Bible, and which we could argue is extremely unbiblical. And what do I mean by that? Many Christians, and, and I know that you know this, you've heard this, you might be here, and this describes you. There are people who say, look, I know I'm a Christian. I believed in Jesus 20, 30, 40 years ago. I don't read the Bible. I've never gone to church. Um, there's no visible evidence to my faith at all, but once saved, always saved. Really long time ago, I made this decision. Have you ever heard something like that? That doesn't exist in God's word. Could you imagine coming to James and saying, look, I know that you say we're supposed to hear the word and obey the word, and then you describe what it looks like, but I don't really do that. Are we still good? You're like, I, 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 what are you talking about? That's not Christianity. That's not what Jesus says when he says, come follow me, or whatever you want to do. Like, that's just not how he describes the Christian life. When, when Paul says, our lives are to be living sacrifices, or not. Like, th there's not this caveat that's there that says, you know, faithfulness doesn't really matter, obedience to the word, submitting to God. It's okay if you don't do that. You can totally be a Christian and not follow and obey Jesus at all. But there's an idea that that exists. And the once saved, always saved, I've heard it misused a lot. Which is why we don't really use that phrase here in this church. Because it's able to be twisted really well. Now, we do believe that God keeps those who are saved. We have verses like Philippians 1.6. I have a few of them up on the screen. He says, this is where Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. Paul wants us to know, God's completing the work. In John chapter 6, this is what Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I mean, there's good assurance there. Jesus keeps those whom have come to him. In Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is given to you so that you would know that you're saved and as the guarantee that one day when Christ returns, you will be glorified and made perfect in his presence. So we have tons of verses like this. So a good question might be, how does God keep us? What does that look like? And we could go to, to many places, but what we have here in James, one answer to that question is that God's preserving grace comes to us in the presence of other believers so we would persevere in our faith. That's what James is about. In other words, God uses Christians as a means of keeping his people saved. That means you are the instrument in God's hand. You are the grace that God uses in the lives of others for the purpose of strengthening one another in the faith. Do you know that? That's a high calling that God brings upon every single one of us. 
And he does that because he gives us his spirit that we'd be empowered and strengthened each day. And he unites us to one another, that we would love one another. And he places his love in us so that he would say, it's by our love that it's evident we're disciples. And what is one of the things that we do to show our love? We go after one another. We encourage one another. We walk with one another. And when we struggle and sin, we come with one another and we bear one another's burdens, helping and encouraging. So I just want to end with two things today. Number one, I encourage you to be a part of table groups. If you're not involved with the church, if you're not involved in table groups, I encourage you to sign up today. Ben will be back there. Um, Do this as obedience to Christ. Do this as um, for the sake of your faith. Do this for the means of others as well. Do this also, if you're a parent, I want you to think about this. How are we teaching our children that the life of the Christian is not one of an individual, but one lived in community with one another. Now, there, Again, some churches don't do table groups and stuff like that, so we're not saying if you're not a part of table groups, you've broken some of God's holy law or something. It's just a way we say that we here are living out this truth. So please, don't. table groups is not in the Bible. Like you're not breaking a commandment if you're not a part of it. But what we're trying to wrestle with here is how do we live this truth out? How do we, as believers in Christ, citizens of God's kingdom, as family members, how do we live out this truth and love one another? How does God's love shine through us into the lives of others? We believe a way that's helpful is the table group. So I encourage you, um, uh, sign up, talk to Ben about that. You can come talk to me. Um, And secondly, I want to say, do you know someone who's questioning their faith? Do you know someone who's wondering? Do you know someone who's just been in a trial for a long time? Do you know someone who, based upon their situation, could wander from the truth? I encourage you, go to them. Go to them today and begin loving on them. Begin walking with them. Begin just listening to them. Begin praying for them, comforting them. Remember, you are the means of grace in which God uses to comfort and to encourage other Christians. And we do that not because of who we are, not because of our might, not because of our gifts, but because the Spirit is in us that we would live like Jesus. Um, I'm going to pray, and then I'll have the men come and we'll take communion.